Okay, so it's 10 o'clock. Let's sit for just about three minutes. Welcome back, everybody. So I thought um, maybe we might have a couple of reports of um, some experiences you've had just uh, this week with the Meditation with Perceptions, if you tried that out, if you discovered anything in the process. Um, so uh, I think most people know how to raise their hand. If, raise your hand if, you, if there's something you want to share that you, that you found or discovered in your practice. Okay, well, go ahead. Um, yes, you can unmute yourselves if you need to. 
Um, okay, so I wanted to um, just sort of um, give a brief summary of where we've been. We, we've begun our exploration of meditation and its relational forms with the relationship with ourself. We investigated meditation with breath awareness, body scans, walking meditation, and awareness of our body in everyday activity. That was the first course. These are quite concrete and specific practices. So they're pretty easy for us to access. In the second class, we went a bit deeper, <clears throat> uh, considering our perceptions, which are the interface between the body and the world, including our sense organs, some external phenomena related to that sense organ, and the sense consciousness that arises in contact between them, which we call perception. <clears throat> you can hear echoes of this in the merging of difference and unity, which is in the chant book when it says eye and form, ear and sound, nose and smell, tongue and taste, thus in all things, the leaves spread from the root. Our perceptions come from these contacts. And then much later declared in the Heart Sutra as empty or in Tanahashi's translation, boundless or my preferred meaning open, so therefore, given emptiness, openness, there's no form, no sensation, no perception, no formation, no consciousness, no eyes, no ears, no nose, no tongue, no body, no mind, no sight, no smell, no smell, no taste, no touch, no object of mind, no realm of sight to no realm of mind consciousness. So it's basically saying there's no external form, there's no sense organs, and there's no... Um, contact between them, and therefore there's no consciousness arising from them. So this is quite explicit. External stimulus, sense organs, the process of sensing through their contact, and even the consciousness arising from our senses are utterly unbounded, empty, open, undefinable. So you can go ahead and try to refute this from your own experience. Uh, we think we have a nose, but where does it begin? Where does it end? What is it really? So we have only um, labels that attempt to create definitions, attempt to include and exclude, to form some kind of boundary that encircles what we're trying to describe. They are all provisional and temporary and ultimately they all fail. So when I was uh, in the work of creating dictionaries, uh, we were working on a children's dictionary and my editor, who was training me, said a definition is like a corral. And everything that belongs to that term is in the corral and everything else is outside the corral. And you need to be able to tell the difference. So, um, so I thought that was kind of an interesting way to think about it. So last week, we experimented with hearing, both alone and with a partner. In this inquiry, we began to extend our concrete internal relation between ourself and our world and explore how our perception leads to emotions, both in ourself and in relation to another. Simple perception, especially with another, is quite difficult because we immediately begin layering onto it our negotiation of meaning, distance or closeness, relational well-being, judgments and interpretations, and all the rich texture of our human relating. So we need to keep returning to the question when we're practicing this, what am I actually perceiving? Um, so <clears throat> what, what's actually uh, in the situation and what am I adding to it? 
So as we continue our exploration, we consider this week the baffling and complex world of all that arises, continuing on from our perceptions and leading to our emotions. Our emotion states begin with perception and generally some sensation in the body-mind system. These perceptions give rise to an experience the Buddha called Vedana. It's a V-E-D-A-N-A, Vedana. This Pali word, as Analeo explains, is derived from the verb vedetti, which means both to feel and to know. So he writes, in its usage in the discourses, vedana comprises both bodily and mental feelings. They are not themselves emotion states, but the catalyst for emotion states, which the Buddha taught as states of body and mind. Vedana refers to that immediate primal experience of our perceptions as positive, negative, or neutral. From Vedana, emotions are formed as aspects of mind and body in mutual interaction. So we may or may not be able to give language to emotions, which in turn crucially shapes our perceptions, our labels for them, our understanding of them, and our actions in ways that are characteristic of our conditioning, layered up from past experiences and our interpretations of them. Our emotions don't just arise in situations, they also drive our response to them. They are immediate, seemingly unbidden, real and compelling. It's important to practice with feelings, positive, negative, neutral, and their resulting emotions, since they have a profound influence in our internal universe, our construction of a self, our relationships with others and the world but we're still quite naive about our emotions and their systematic arousal. So let's talk first about what emotions we share with the animals. So in doing so, I'm gonna draw on the research by Jack Pansep and Lucy Bivens in their book, Archaeology of Mind. Pansep, who died in 2017, had joint appointments as a professor in three disciplines, psychology, animal well-being, and molecular therapeutics and had extensively studied emotions, brain chemistry, and their evolution in humans and in animals. So his research identified seven emotions that we humans share with animals, specifically mammals. He suggested that there may be more as yet undiscovered emotions we have in common, but these were the ones that he was able to identify and they were able to um, uh, uh, actually do research on. In the book, he details the neurobiology and biochemistry as well as the evolutionary development associated with these emotions we share. I found this really fascinating, um, just geeking out. Um, so the, the systems, uh, emotion systems that he, that he identified were first of all, the seeking system. And this is the order in which they came online in evolutionary terms. The first one is a seeking system. Um, brain sources of eager anticipation, desire, euphoria, and the quest for everything. So um, mammals share this, this emotional system also, but begins with seeking, um, and uh, which the Buddha also identified, right? This, uh, this kind of um, uh, curiosity, clinging, grasping. Then uh, second is ancestral sources of rage. Um, and probably that arose uh, when the seeking system was thwarted in some way, right? 
third, ancestral sources of fear. And those are very primal. Those rage and fear are very primal emotions. So is seeking. Um, then next uh, arose lustful passions of the mind from reproductive urges to romantic love. And this came on mind because mammals had to tend to their young, right? Unlike fish or, you know, um, other kinds of animals. It's just mammals tend their young. That's one of the identifying characteristics. So, out, so necessarily out of this reproductive urge and romantic love arose the care system. So caring is a primal emotion. And then from that arose the panic grief system and the genesis of life-sustaining social bonds. So panic grief, um, Panksepp talks about in this very endearing way, is the experience of a baby bird when the mother flies away. So the mother is going off to get food, but the baby bird has no idea whether that mother's ever going to come back again. And there's this enormous, uh, you know, sort of panic grief experience. And then finally, the last um, system that, that he identified as coming online was playful, dreamlike circuits of the brain, the ancestral sources of social joy and laughter. So I thought this was very interesting um, to think in these terms. And um, in his understanding, these emotions arise spontaneously through our brain's limbic system, our brain chemistry, and our relationship with ourselves, others, and the world. Because we have bundles of neurons surrounding our heart and gut, these are also implicated in our emotions. So as I've said before, there's no way to prevent the spontaneous arising of these emotions as so many religions have attempted to do. Not in commandments from God, not in torture by inquisitions, not in confession and repentance, not in monastic isolation, not in well-meaning policies and regulations. These emotion states cannot be prevented. 2000 years of failure just for Christianity, I say. Um, but in Buddhism, we do not try to prevent emotion states from arising, but to use them as Dharma gates to awakening. How so? By staying present with our emotions, studying them, recognizing them as embodied present moment experience, we can wake up to the underlying conditioning that feeds and distorts them, turning them into karmic thoughts, words, and actions. Emotions are just the energy of life flowing through us. But we have the capacity to manage that energy wisely or unwisely, compassionately or selfishly. So how do we practice this? Analeo writes, thus to contemplate feelings means quite literally to know how one feels. And this was such immediacy that the light of awareness is present before the onset of reactions, projections, or justifications in regard to how one feels. The systematic development of such immediate knowing will also strengthen one's more intuitive modes of apperception in the sense of the ability to get a feel for a situation or another person. The Buddha further identified feelings as either worldly or unworldly so that as monks trained in this way, when, a, when feeling a pleasant feeling, one knows I feel a pleasant feeling. When feeling an unpleasant feeling, one knows I feel an unpleasant feeling. When feeling a neutral feeling, one knows 
I feel a neutral feeling. So the Buddha went on to be even more specific. When feeling a worldly pleasant feeling, one knows I feel a worldly pleasant feeling. When feeling an unworldly pleasant feeling, one knows I feel an unworldly pleasant feeling. When feeling a worldly unpleasant feeling, one knows I feel a worldly unpleasant feeling. When feeling an unworldly unpleasant feeling, one knows I feel an unworldly unpleasant feeling. When feeling a worldly neutral feeling, one knows I feel a worldly neutral feeling. When feeling an unworldly neutral feeling, one knows I feel an unworldly neutral feeling. So in the Buddha's teaching, worldly feelings are those related to the five senses and the material world, the world of form. Unworldly feelings are those related to spiritual experience, renunciation, and the path of the Dharma. So how many of us have this precise present mindfulness? Basically, you'd be aware of exactly what you are experiencing moment to moment, exactly what your situation is moment to moment, and this is being awake. It's calm abiding, not without feelings, but quite awake in them and quite aware of the sense contexts that are fueling them. The stories, judgments, plans, words, actions, ideas, theories, and self-making, and so on that they spark. So you can notice anger is present now, or sadness is present now, or contentment is present now, even if you're caught up in it and swamped or overwhelmed by its force. You can be aware of its rising, its appearance, and its ultimate dissolving throughout. Notice that simply abiding in emotion states without suppressing them or venting them, we gain insight into ourselves and our own conditioning. To be patient and compassionate with ourselves when we are overtaken by our emotions is the ground of practice. In that way, we train as well to be patient and compassionate and beneficial when we realize that others are caught in the riptide of emotion. We're free from reactivity, whether to our own emotions or those of others. That does not mean that we do not feel, do not respond, only that we respond from a different, more spacious, free and open place, rather than from our limited conditioning, judgments, fear, blame and shame. So we'll do a little um, activity, a little short meditation practice and this um, will be just individually. Um, so, <clears throat> so take a moment and allow yourself to just rest in stillness Get comfortable. And then check in with your breathing. Notice whether the breaths are long or short, deep or shallow, without judging them. Check in now with your whole body, head to toe, noticing any contraction, tension, pain or ease. Just observing without manipulating your experience in any way.
with this mindful whole body awareness, simply begin labeling whatever you notice as pure experience, positive, negative, neutral. Continue mindfully naming positive, positive, neutral, negative, neutral. As bodily sensations arise, as thoughts appear, perceptions, emotions, simply return to labeling them without doing anything about them. Your practice is this simple noticing and bare awareness. It's very challenging at first because we have lots of ideas about how we should feel, but just set those aside and observe with a kind of friendly curiosity as a scientist of your own experience. So if you're willing to share what your what this experience was like for you, how it felt to just be focusing on positive, negative, and neutral, uh, just raise your hand and we'll we'll share some of that experience. Yeah, Richie. Oh, you're muted. I think you can unmute yourself. <clears throat> There you go. Um, I notice sometimes that, uh, is it like a blanket, positive, neutral or negative? Sometimes I get like something I think is neutral and then I think, oh, there's, there's a little bit of pleasantness about that. Would that just be in the pleasant section? So you're, so that you immediately begin thinking about what your experience is 
and um, and trying to analyze it. So even that even that thought is an experience. So uh, so those of us who spend a lot of time in our heads enjoy those positive thoughts and those ideas and um, and uh, ways of sort of teasing things apart. Um, so that might be a pleasant experience. So we we raise questions about our own experience, don't we? Sometimes we. We're not even sure what we're experiencing. Yeah, I think that's that's not uncommon at all. Yeah, and we, then we start second guessing ourselves. Was that really pleasant or was that actually neutral? Yeah, was it was pleasant, pleasant, partly neutral. <laughs> yeah, I couldn't make my mind up sometimes. Yeah, <laughs> yeah but, this, but the perception and the um, uh, feeling, vedana, is immediate and it's singular. So it's a, it's a perception. It's immediately before labeling or anything um, has that quality. So even an amoeba will um, swim upstream of a food gradient, right? Because that's pleasant. So even an amoeba has the, that perception of pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral things they move away from. And, you know, so um, so this is primal. It's before we have any ideas about it. Yeah. Right, so a neutral might be something that you neither grasp towards nor feel aversion. Right, so. exactly, exactly, that's exactly right. Yeah, you, you, don't, you don't experience it either way, something you're leaning toward or something you're leaning away from. So I sometimes think of it in terms of just the lean, right? Um, because lean, lean towards, lean away from, there's a little mental lean um, that is uh, part of uh, Vedana. Yeah, great. That's helpful, thank yeah. you. Okay. Yeah, Maria. Yeah, I find that really interesting. Um, I noticed that um, I had like tensions in my body that I, I moved towards first. They were the first things that I kind of paid attention to. And I thought I've got this kind of heat in my chest and attention. And the first thought was negative because it's a heat and it's a tension. Mm -hmm. And then I noticed like a tension on the palms of my hands and, and on, around my ankles, like someone's gripping my ankles. Mm -hmm. And my immediate kind of reference to that was, was negative. And then I noticed like in the top of my head, there wasn't any real, just sort of in the top part of my head, there wasn't really any sensation. And I kind of labeled that as like a content, like, oh, that part of me is content. And my mm -hmm. thighs are content because there's no real sensation there. They just they're just quite happy is, is what I, <laughs> I kind of have termed them as. And then I noticed a pursing around my lips. I've got an abscess again at the moment. So I noticed my lips were kind of pursed in. And, and anything that was tense or, or kind of a heated energy was immediately referenced as a negative. And I noticed myself kind of really sitting with that and kind of looking at how I'm doing that, how I'm labeling any tension as negative when, like you said before, it's an energy. Right. It's just an energy. So it was really interesting to sit with that and to see what I was doing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's our conditioning that um, applies the, um, the kind of uh, response to that. You know, it's, it's just what it is. Um, and, uh, and, and you'll also notice if you do this practice, um, negative, 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 negative. And you start to see, whoa, <laughs> I'm doing this all the time. I'm filtering for the negative impressions, 
right? Or, um, or you know, neutral, 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 neutral. I guess I'm bored all the time, you know? <laughs> you start to see that there are sort of constellations of these things. And that's what makes this, this kind of practice interesting because there isn't really in that contact any judgment. There's, there's no right or wrong, like this should be positive or this should be negative. There's just, you notice, oh, my immediate response as you did to tension is this is negative, right? Yeah, yeah. And it's like the thing with like, anxiety, isn't it? It's like I, I label it anxiety when I get that tension in my chest. Right. And with anxiety, there's lots of negative connotations to that rather right. than, well, this is just another energy. This is just another feeling in my body. And and how we can kind of once you've kind of took the anxiety label off it, you can sit with it exactly. in a different way and have a That's different exactly relationship right. to it. That's right, because it's excited energy that we've decided we don't like <laughs> yeah that's right yeah that's absolutely right it's like oh no i need to contain this or i need to do right. something with so this needs to go away right exactly so you know i often tell a story when i was in high school and acting in plays and there's that moment before right before you go on stage you know you get this rush of energy and for my best friend who was also in the plays with me um, this was stage fright um, and she had to work through it but for me, it was excitement, like, let's go, you know? So it was the exact same energy. But well, a completely different experience for both of you because you'd yeah. labeled it differently. Right, right, right. And we thought about it differently. And she'd say, I get so terrified right before I go on stage. And I, and I would think, why? You know, this is what we've rehearsed for. This is what, we're, this is what we're, we've been leading up to. This is our performance. <laughs> It's interesting that you say stage fright because that's what I've named everything all my life before I go in to see a client or before uh -huh. I, I go into a class. It's like there's a stage fright just before. And with and, and when you said to me about anxiety being an energy, I've been reframing that and reframing that feeling. Right. And it, it changes everything. Oh, yeah. It yeah. changes so much. It's quite an incredible, just even just a slight shift, it it changes so much i mean obviously i'm still working with that yeah. <laughs> but, almost, but almost all of us get uh, ramped up if we have to give a presentation or a talk or even i still you know when i'm going to do a teaching i can feel that energy level rise you know um and i don't i i think sometimes i think of this as a sort of a productive thing because it generates a lot of ideas and it um it uh, gets me engaged and interested in what i'm going to be teaching so so in that sense it's productive um, but I, I know that in the beginning, I didn't feel that way about teaching. When I first started teaching, I was like, every second was planned, you know, like I was so worried and so anxious. And I thought the students were so ready to be hostile. You know? <laughs> 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 they were just sitting there at their desk, just waiting, just waiting to be hostile, whatever I said. <laughs> so that energy, isn't it? It's like that anxiety that I was talking about that I called stage fright and anxiety becomes a barrier if exactly. it's if we if we're looking at it in that way it's like it's always been a barrier for me that i have to jump over that i have to get through to get to to do what i need to do rather yeah. than oh this is an energy this is this is something that i can harness and use and you know it's just yeah. a, it's an invitation isn't it? it's my body inviting me to perform or to to just right. up a little gear just come forth you know so now i think of this as readiness you know mm. like uh you know like just that readiness, I'm, you know, it's an aliveness. And when we think about it that way, then it's, um, it, it shifts, it's, you're, you're absolutely right, it shifts the quality of it for us. 
and probably for other people too, because they can pick up on that edge of, you know, um, nervousness that we're not um, happy about. (laughs) (laughs) And instead of the enthusiasm and excitement, you know, um, yeah. So, uh, yeah. And so uh, my, um, my, niece is a therapist and she said she deals a lot with adolescence and she said it's really really important when you open the door that you have a big smile on your face because adolescents are so accustomed to being criticized and judged Mm. and so i i wouldn't have thought of that but you know that's it's that um it's that that way of coming forth yeah that's great that's a great example we're taught to harness our energy though, aren't we? So is that where it comes from? It's kind of like, you know, when we're toddlers, we bound through a door smiling and jumping about. And then yeah. as we get older, we're taught to calm that down and walk through. So we're kind of taught that that kind of energy isn't productive. It isn't welcome. It mm. isn't welcome, yeah. And it isn't appropriate. Mm. Yeah. And so we, you know, we tamp it down as best we can. Um, and I think this is, um, this does, a disservice in our relationships because that um, that energetic quality of meeting with all this aliveness is so um, satisfying for us as humans. We seek it, you know that that aliveness, and we and we um, it's contagious, so we catch it from each other, right? Mm. Yeah. So yeah, so this is a this is such a good practice because it drains meanings out of your experience. It's just positive, negative, neutral, positive, negative, neutral, which allows you to observe how quickly we have that um, contact reaction. And that's hardwired into us. That again, is not something we can uh, manipulate. But as you said, we we certainly can manage that energy wisely or unwisely, right? Mm -hmm. Um, it's, It's sort of like we have uh, a hose, and it might be a little garden hose, a small amount of energy, or it might be a big fire hose, right? Be careful where you point that thing. Like, we're responsible. <laughs> and it's the language as well, isn't it? Like you were talking about last week, we, we've, we've, we've framed it all in this language, so we have to rehash all our language around it. Well, I think we can at least inquire. So I think our practice is about inquiring. Is that all there is, or is that the only way we can describe this, or is there some other way to think about it? Um, and that is helpful um, because it opens a space uh, and that space surrounds our conditioning, which is our conditioned habituated pattern. So I'll talk a little bit more about that in a minute. Yeah. Yeah. So thank you. Yeah. Kim. So I spoke to you about this a few days ago that I was in the Zendo and one day everything was off. It was like an OCD episode. The the sabatons were all different sizes, and the, you know any the even the grain pattern on the altar, uh, the wood was drove me mad. And then the next day, I was there and everything was okay. So more than conditioning in that sense, it seemed like there was something biochemical going on where I had one impression one day and one and the other. And, and I remembered when everything was okay, I remembered how yesterday everything was so painful, but, yeah. but I couldn't, I couldn't um, be there. Yeah. It just seemed like 
someone had told me a story and I didn't believe it. <laughs> yeah, it's really true. You know, we are sensitive to our environments and sometimes that sensitivity is more raw and sometimes it's a little bit more, I don't know, easy to manage. Yeah. So I don't know if I could have made a choice that first day. Well, I'm just not going, I don't think I could have. Wherever Maybe. I looked, mm -hmm. someone had messed with me. Was it, was it the day after Louisa comes? Uh, I'm not sure. Uh, <laughs> because Louisa always leaves things a little bit cockeyed, you know. Yeah, well, you, she certainly didn't make one Zafu bigger than the <laughs> other, you know, that kind of thing. You can't play her for So you even had distorted perceptions. I don't think they were distorted, they, but I, I just focused on them. Uh -huh, I see. <laughs> yeah, no, they really are. Oh, maybe the, the bigger one got bigger, you mean, and the littler yeah. one got looked like a tired old man, that kind of thing. <laughs> okay, so maybe it was distorted in that sense, exaggerated or yeah. certainly in my mind as yeah. being, being of consequence. Yeah, yeah. I, I see what you mean by distorted. So one day we have a negative, um, you know, bedana to this, and the same phenomena the next day, it's neutral. And I suppose that um, someone's in trouble if, if uh, they kind of go overboard with being like that's what OCD maybe is. Yeah, well, I'll talk about that. You can't bit get rid of You can't. Yeah. Get rid of it. I'll talk a little bit about traits in a minute that are tendencies, our tendencies. Okay. Yeah, that we form. Yeah. Mehdi? Uh, in follow up to Kim's just experience, uh, the emotions usually are like a wave. They come and pass, and usually they don't last or shouldn't last long. But if an emotion lasts long, it probably there is a defensive quality to it, or it's it's a little bit more complicated than. So, I, but, I just, but Mehdi, Mehdi, what was your experience with the meditation? Uh, this this morning, this today, this My, um, negative, po positive, negative, and neutral. Well, it was neutral, a little bit on the anxious side, because I was feeling my heart, actually. I was a discomfort. So you, so you felt your heart, and that was unpleasant. Yes. And uh -huh. that feeling was even when I woke up this morning. Uh -huh. So you. So it was there, you know, that discomfort. And I usually don't have that. Right. And so what I did during, you know, the couple of hours that I had before, you know, this meeting, I took a baby aspirin, you know, which I usually <laughs> as a preventive, but uh, it was overall, the experience was neutral and deliberate on the anxious side. Yeah. Okay. So <laughs> those some unpleasant sensations and some, yes. uh, and some neutral. Did you have any pleasant sensations? I do, actually. I do, you know, overall looking at the events of life, 
I no, 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 not generally okay. speaking. No, 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 that is not about ideas. Now you're talking about it. During the, during the few minutes that we were doing- A few we, minutes. Yeah, during this, this, this short meditation, did you have no. any that you labeled as pleasant? No, just, just the, I was comfortable sitting and being, being you know, with, with you okay. all. So that, that, that was. you experienced that as pleasant? Yes. Okay, so good. <laughs> that's, a, that's it's, it's, it's utterly simple. You know, what we're doing is utterly simple. It's not complicated. It's yeah. really, really simple. Yeah. <laughs> okay. okay, good. Well, when I've done this in the past, I have a hard time recognizing neutral. I get negative, I get positive, and it's like neutral doesn't exist. And I thought today I did recognize some neutral feelings, but uh, it's just something that I'm a little curious about. So right now, your left shoulder. Do I feel neutral? You know, it's yeah, that, well, like, right now. Am I John? feeling it? Right now, your left shoulder. Does it feel positive or negative or neutral? Yeah. It's often you can identify it more it easily. It feels neutral. Yeah, with body parts. So um, you, we, we tend to focus on unpleasant sensations in the body, but then we can ask ourselves, well, what about my right thumb? Or what about my elbow? Um, and that's how we can begin to tease out some of the more neutral feelings. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Um, as uh, Mehdi pointed out, uh, it's worth noting that research has demonstrated that in terms of neurophysiology, emotions have a maximum duration of about 90 seconds. We can amplify or extend those emotions, of course, using these great big brains we have. We have the capacity to experience emotions by recalling past experience or anticipating future experiences outside of our current situation. We have the capacity to create emotions using our imaginations conditioning or memory. I think this might be a unique capacity in humans. Empathic response to emotions of others, however, is something that animals clearly share with us. It's been observed in elephants, in primates, in horses, in dogs and cats. Even rats laugh together, as Pankasup discovered in his research. So we have these immediate contacts and positive, negative, neutral arisings, but personality traits shape our interactions with ourselves, others in the world, and our feelings about it in important ways. So psychologists have this saying, states repeated become traits, traits become character. And they say about neurons in our brains, what fires together wires together. For example, in childhood, if we have a cranky neighbor with red hair, we may unconsciously associate red hair with anger, criticism, and blame, even as adults, when we ought to know better. We all have these associations continuously forming through our lived experience, and most of them unconscious. In other words, as Joko said, we become good at what we practice, and that practice can be conscious or unconscious. Some people faithfully practice anger in all its range from annoyance to rage. 
Some people faithfully practice woundedness, nursing slights, recalling past injuries, and imagining wrongs to fuel their practice. Judgments, dissatisfaction, grasping, fear, and anxiety, worry, impatience, distractions, loneliness can all be practiced until we're habituated, true experts. And the qualities we practice form the inner world we inhabit and the outer world we interact with. But we can equally practice contentment, connection, delight, wonder, creativity, curiosity, appreciation, and so on. In the beginning, it might feel a bit awkward, especially if this practice or these emotions are new to you. But gradually, it can be fostered and cultivated through mindful intention and care. So as um, Dan Siegel, the um, fabled uh, interpersonal neurobiologist wrote, we're all born with a temperament, an innate proclivity of the nervous system to shape our inner and outer responses, propensities that interact with our experiences to shape our personality as we grow. These tendencies present even at birth have cascading effects in our lives, particularly when they are amplified, suppressed, or distorted by our surroundings, including our caregivers, siblings, social milieu and environment. So that's a lot, but basically um, psychologists have uh, a, a pretty substantial body of research across cultures and ranging from infancy to old age that concludes that there are five durable personality traits which can be observed even in earliest infancy and persist through our lifetimes. So I'm gonna share a screen which um, sort of illuminates this a little bit and might be uh, easier. Uh, let's see, I think that's it. Okay, you can see this now. So, so these traits shape what we perceive, how we interpret our perceptions, how we learn from them. I'm not sure if you can see the whole thing, but um, we derive our sense of ourself, others, and the world as a consequence. I, th so the chart here is a chart that's up on um, Simply Psychology. Um, and it's, uh, it has an acronym, this set of traits, OCEAN. Um, so um, what, they, uh, what they explain when looking at this is each one of these traits is a continuum. There's you know, a range of possibilities. They're not binary. You're not either open or closed. It's like there's a range of openness. Um, and so the big five personality traits are extroversion, often spelled extroversion, agreeableness, openness, conscientiousness, and neuroticism. Each trait represents a continuum. Individuals can fall anywhere on the continuum for each trait. The big five remain relatively stable throughout most of one's lifetime. They're influenced significantly by both genes and the environment with an estimated heritability of 50%. They're also known to predict certain important life outcomes such as education and health. So to the right, I, I don't know, is this entirely on the screen, this chart? Can you see the whole chart? Um, uh, you can see um, the chart they present, but I disagree with the language and some of the assumptions in it. Um, so I do think the studies can be helpful, but I'm going to give you my revised version. And then you can decide for yourself what, what you think is, uh, is probably, uh, probably right. So um, I see this as here's this continuum of closed and open. That's the first one. 
imagination, feelings, actions, and ideas. And I put what's the tendency and then what are the extremes that cause difficulties? So on the left side, you can see the tendency is prefers order, stability, continuity. But in, to the extreme, it's a person who is stuck, unwilling to change, stubborn, rigid, refusing to accept the new or improved and can't accept impermanence. And on the, um, uh, on the op more open side, pervert, prefers novelty, um, change, experimentation. Uh, and then at the extreme, it's sort of undiscerning embrace of novelty, distractible, scattered energies, lack of continuity or depth, unable to draw on wisdom from the past and a kind of chaos. So does this make sense? You see, you see kind of how, how this is a continuum. Um, then the next uh, trait they identified as conscientious and carefree. Um, so uh, the conscientious tendency is to be responsible, self-disciplined, goal and task oriented and dependable. And you can see the extreme um, version of that is martyred, focus on task and goals to the point of damaging relationships, rigid, dutiful to the point of harm to self or others. This is, these are, this is some of this is my language, you know, so you have to take it with a grain of salt. On the uh, carefree side of things, creative, impulsive, risk-taking, adventurous, unconventional, free in thought and action. But to the extreme, it means the person is irresponsible, foolish, unmindful of others, unethical and untrustworthy, unreliable, amoral. They, they don't, they're not bound by anything. Does that, does that make sense so far? <clears throat> then there's the introversion extroversion, which um, has been widely discussed in psychology. And I, I think of this very much as a continuum and not only a continuum, but a dynamic continuum as people change and this over the lifespan and also dynamically, uh, depending on situation often, but they have a tendency. There's, it, we're really talking just about a general tendency around sociability, assertiveness, emotional expression. So the tendency for the, um, on the introversion end of things is a person who enjoys solitude, finds pleasure in solitary activities, in distress seeks time alone. To the extreme, that results in isolation, paranoia, depression, anxiety, extreme thoughts, behaviors, or emotions which have no corrective, unable to respond to the needs and expectations of others. So very isolated and stuck. Um, on the other side, um, the tendency for the person who's extrovert is someone who's energized by social interactions, enjoys being in the company of others, and in distress seeks the company of others rather than solitude. Um, in the extreme, it seems to me this is someone who's dependent on social interaction, needy, clinging, may act out to gain attention or approval, and have, uh, has a fear of being alone or abandoned. The next trait they identified is resistance agreeableness. So um, this is the tendency to be cooperative, trustworthy, easygoing. The tendency is um, on the resistance side is resist situations and ideas proposed by others, is not easily led or convinced, maintains a position or view despite others' positions, does not necessarily trust experts, does not go along to get along. In the extreme, this is someone who is uncooperative, irritable, difficult to be with, agitated, and easily angered, 
refusal to accept a situation, others' opinions or agreements, unsatisfiable, cannot be persuaded, combative or destructive. So this is my sense of, of that extreme. Um, on the um, agreeableness side, this is a person who cooperates and collaborates with a situation and the people in it, finds ways to harmonize with the positions or views of others, is willing to accept consensus or compromise. But in the extreme, this type, uh, this end of the continuum goes to a person who's subject to groupthink, may collude with injustice or cruelty, may be easily drawn into unhealthy views or dangerous situations, subject to peer pressure, persuasion, coercion, conspiracy theories and things like that because of going along with others. And finally, um, what they had as neuroticism, I don't believe that's the right term for this. I think it has to do with neutrality of emotion and excitability of emotion. So um, where uh, one tendency is about maintaining equanimity and stability, even in upsetting situations, calm, self-regulating. At the extreme, this is someone who's stoic, repressed, shut down, unfeeling, distant, unmoved by the suffering of others, kind of robotic. Uh, excitability of emotion end of things, emotions are close to the surface and easily activated and touched by emotions in others. Uh, on the extreme end, it's someone who's volatile, easily triggered, quick to take offense, melodramatic or extreme expressions of emotions or even violent. So these are um, traits. Um, we, um, you know, it's one way of uh, thinking about or categorizing um, the differences in the ways that we meet experience right from the very beginning, right from the moment that we're born. Um, so I'm gonna stop sharing this. This will be in the handouts and you can, uh, you can take issue with it there, right? <laughs> so, um, <clears throat> so, Okay, so that the acronym for that is OCEAN, but of course the acronym sort of gets messed up with my uh, revisions. In an even more recent book from 2018, Panksepp and Davis explored these famous big five traits in research that takes a neurobiological and evolutionary approach. So I can't wait to read more about this. This is on the way. Um, so how do we bring this awareness of our emotion, emotion states into our relationship with ourselves? with others, with the world. I think we should find out. So we're gonna have an activity and um, I'm not sure, Kim, are you um, in charge of this? Okay, um, so I'm gonna explain the whole activity to you and then, um, and then we'll be in a small groups of three. Um, this is naming present moment experience. Some of you have done this activity before with threes. In this activity, there's one speaker at a time and each person will have a turn as a speaker. Meanwhile, the listeners simply observe as compassionate witnesses, both the speaker as well as what's happening in themselves as they listen, right? So you have a job as a listener as well as a job as a speaker. Speakers, focus on your ongoing experience using ING words or phrases. Breathing, remembering my brother, hearing birds, heart beating, thinking about lunch. It's okay to pause to check in with your body or breathing, but you want to capture the stream of experience as it is ongoing. Don't make things up, just name what's present. Worrying about my project, 
shoulder aching, breathing in, breathing out, heart beating. It's whatever you notice in these ING terms. We'll be in breakout rooms and we'll begin, you'll begin with a minute of silence just so that you can settle into the present moment. Decide who will go first, second, and third. And listeners, your job is to keep track of the time for each speaker. In turn, each person has two minutes speaking. And when everyone is complete, sit in silence for one minute together. Then take about 10 minutes to discuss your experience. So it's one minute of silence. Each person in turn, two minutes, one minute of silence and then about 10 minutes to discuss your experience, both as speakers and listeners. And did you notice any emotions uh, arising? So then we'll return to the whole group and, and you can share anything that you would like to share. Um, so uh, any questions about any of that? Well, I'm taking that it's 18 minutes. You said, right? Yeah, we'll allow 20 minutes just because people will have to settle themselves and um, decide who's going in what order. And do you want to be in a group? We need. And we're back. I'm remembering um, my dear friend, uh, Nana Martin, talking about her, her brother when she, he was about eight years old. And, <clears throat> uh, and so they would come to the dinner table and he uh, wanted to be uh, a radio announcer. So they'd come to the dinner table and he'd say, and we're back. <laughs> in its most melodious voice, <laughs> and we're back. So any reports about what that experience was like for you? Either as a speaker or as a listener. Yeah, Joan. Oh, Glenn, Glenn, then Maria, then Joan. No, you guys all came up at the same time. You want to unmute, Glenn? That was fun. We we all three observed transition. Um, Claudine said she uh, wasn't in the beginning of the exercise uh, very equanimous, but then as she let go of some sadness through the, and we cycled through it. Then she said she had a more steady state. And she told me that she could see that I began the exercise pretty level state with some, you know, sort of very constant level state. But then she heard joy creep into my voice as we moved through the, as we moved through the process. Mm -hmm. And then Alan talked about transitioning into an awareness of letting the environmental sounds go just sort of like car passing go instead of following the car mm -hmm. or, or listening for the next car and so there was a kind of a i'm paraphrasing ellen in this, but there's so so i i enjoyed thinking about the transition that they we all three seemed to apparently went through and i wouldn't have been aware of mine if claudine hadn't pointed it out ah. so that was that was nice yeah you didn't you hadn't noticed that quality. yes yeah. Yeah, that's great. It's a kind of a shared meditation, right? Yeah. And sometimes people say, we just all felt a deepening. You know, if each person spoke, it went deeper and a little deeper. 
Yeah. Good. Good. That sounds, um, uh, it sounds like your listeners were very observant. It's interesting to be witnessed in that way, isn't it? Yeah. So Maria. Yeah, it's some of the things that, that Glenn was saying, but also I think it was interesting for me just to realize, you know, you think you're sitting and you think you're being right here and you and then to be taken to actively go back to just here again, you realize how far away you are from just here and it's like laurie's talk on uh, inquiry on tuesday you know when she talks about you know to feel your ankles and it was like oh goodness i wasn't even aware of them again you think you're here and until your attention you know gets brought right right back again so it was really wonderful to just come right back and notice and then when other people were speaking it was a real connectivity thing for me because it was so similar as well. And the way we all wander around our minds and, you know, mm -hmm. randomly, you know, just, we're just, things are just popping up and, you know, and how often things are popping up for us and, and taking us if we allow them to take us. So kind of really having that exercise to just stay with the naming and the labeling and to just stay right here was uh, was was a really good exercise for me because I think I'm sitting and I'm very present and then I get reminded sometimes that it, it amazes me how many times we have to do that we just have to come back a billion times a day literally yeah, you true. know and why, why we can't just get there and stay there I've no idea but <laughs> so many stories and collaborations and you know yeah. fantasies and things that that we do and you know like glenn was saying we follow the car we follow the start you know instead of just oh there's a car and you know mm -hmm. breathing or there's a feeling and yeah we get so carried away yeah and it's not like you could live that way 100 percent of the time it's just nice to know that that's possible and it mm. and it's a kind of um restful nourishment from all mm. the ways we're jerking ourselves around with this that um yeah, getting caught up it's yeah. like laurie said it's a lovely place to visit you know to keep visit and keep coming back again and again and that's right and to know what's there mm. yeah. yeah that's great yeah thank you joan uh well i found the naming of what was occurring at that moment very self-nourishing to just be giving that much attention to this small uh, happening that was going on. And I was surprised when I listened to others that I put a great deal, I, I would put meaning into what they said. Mm. Uh, or, or I'd start compassion and, and identification and so many things that were connecting that when I was just doing what I was feeling I was I was separate but mm -hmm. when I was listening to them I was so connected and when we talked the three of us uh, it was just um, impressive how carefully people were listening mm -hmm. and that I think that felt uh, made us all feel very heard in a closeness, but it was uh, people really, really attending to what was going on in our group. 
That's so interesting, isn't it? How that closeness arises in hearing another. Yeah. That's great. Thank you. <laughs> Richie. Yeah, we all noticed how, um, uh, well, I think we all noticed the same thing, <laughs> how we reflect things, you know, when someone, when a, as a listener, when someone's speaking and um, so they'll feel a certain sensation, how my body seems to recreate that sensation as I'm listening to them. Mm -hmm. Or um, there, was, there was a moment where um, um, I was describing the rain outside and that brought some memory up in, in another person who made them smile because they remembered the rain in Austin and then um, another person was talking about um, the cat in the other room and that made everyone smile because we could visualize it. It's just, this, this the, um, I found the reflection thing interesting how listening to someone else it, I can feel the same sensations sometimes you know mm -hmm. when they're talking which was interesting I thought. Mm. That's our empathic capacity. Yeah. 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 It's like the mirror neurons they talk about. They talk about mirror neurons in the brain, don't they? Right. Mm. They foster that sense of experiencing what the other person is experiencing. Mm. That's great. That's great. Thanks. <laughs> <Yeah>. Lauren? <laughs> I didn't hear you for a second there. Yeah. Um, I noticed when I was labeling my experience, um, a distinct moment where my story fell away. Um, which is always just so nice to me. I mean, I find myself really um, sort of getting sucked into a story about my, the way, how anxious I was feeling and blah. And then I, okay. It just kind of evaporated as I reminded myself of the exercise. Um, and um, anyway, um, yeah, and Kim and I talked about just how curious it is, how our thoughts just continue to come and, and change. Um, sort of unmitigated and um, just the curious nature of that. Yeah. Yeah. So I always think it's uh, of the brain as like a popcorn popper, you know, sort of <laughs> <laughs> ideas, sensations, emotions, you know. <laughs> organ, an organ that secretes thoughts. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Great. Yeah, it's good that you noticed that story falling away experience because that experience in itself can be quite pleasurable. It was quite, yeah. 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 It's, a, it's a burden to carry the story. So, and so much energy is bound up in it, you know, trying to keep it. Yeah, right. yeah. Mm -hmm. And that's how I was describing it. You know, the way I like the way you, you um, changed the word neuroticism, you know. Um, yeah. It's more a kind of emotional sensitivity, I think. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, so it's as much a problem for people who are over-empathic as it is for people who are, uh, you know, um, totally unemotional. Mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Great. Thank you. So Kim, I just want to say a few more words. So I'm going to um, hold off on it and we'll catch up with you. Um, I just wanted to say a little bit about in practice, emotions serve as hindrances in our practice when they have the effect of clouding our bright, clear awareness, classically, by arousing sense desires, ill will, restlessness and worry, dullness and torpor or doubt. So the Buddha identified these five hindrances in particular in his teaching. So I love that term hindrances because it suggests some difficulty that can be overcome rather than serving as obstacles or character flaws. However, these hindrances can also be, as I mentioned, Dharma gates for our spiritual inquiry, trailheads that can lead us to deeper understanding of ourselves and others. So we can deepen our wisdom and compassion profoundly through these practices, since we and others are so often driven by our emotions and identified with them. So this week, focus your meditation on one of these practices. I'm gonna put a list of practices with emotion up as a handout. Um, The handout will be all the notes for the class, um, the charts that we looked at, and and then these um, uh, uh, little practices that you can try on. So um, notice the impact of feelings and emotions on your quality of relating with others and with the world. If you identify an emotion such as anger, identify it with these questions. How do I do this thing I call anger? So take first a physical inventory, locate what changes in your body, then what thoughts and stories get attached to those sensations. Is it really anger? Ask yourself, what else is here? Emotions are rarely singular, Usually other feelings accompany them or are also moving under them, fear, anxiety, grief. So just keep asking what else is here until you're completely satisfied that everything has been recognized. So, um, yeah, so um, know too that uh, we're very, very sensitized to the emotions of others. We're social beings. We react not only to our own emotions, but to the emotions of others. And this effect is exponential depending on the number of people we're with. That's why mobs get violent, why we're more scared at horror films and movie theaters, and why compassion and care amplify compassion and care with others. Our emotion states are hardwired for mutuality, whether in cooperation or conflict or calm abiding with others. So this week, pay attention to how your own emotion states both influence others and are influenced by others in relational dynamics. We're also actively engaged with our world, the natural world, the built environment, social structures and dynamics. So look for patterns in your emotional experience. Think about how your emotions are activated by the media you consume, whether they are calmed by being in nature. Think about whether you're intentionally or unconsciously fostering certain emotion states through the choices you're making. So, I'm going to um, end there because I, I know we're at the out of time, but, um, but next week we'll put these concentration practices we've explored so far together in a comprehensive way. So we'll establish mindfulness of body, mind, and intention, and that'll conclude our practice in relating with self and prepare us to begin our practice of inquiry into the Dharma, investigating for ourselves the radical teachings of the Buddha. So, that's your, uh, your work for the week. I'll put up a handout with uh, some different practices you can do working with emotions. Um, and it's baffling, it's complex, and sometimes hard to tease them 
apart and sometimes hard to understand whether our names for them are really what we're feeling. So pay attention as best you can or report back next week what your explorations bring up for you. Um, but emotions are very, very profound and powerful in our lives. And so it's wise to pay attention to how we're doing them, how, how I do this, how I do that, right? So um, is it anger or is it just impatience or is it uh, some anxiety or, but you know, we have labeled all these labels, but uh, we wanna understand how does this arise in the body, in this body uh, and what stories and ideas get attached to, to those sensations. Okay, all right. Have a wonderful week. I will see you next week. Take good care of yourselves and your emotions. Thank Bye. you.